I invite you to turn your Bibles now to Paul's first letter to Timothy and chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 7 this evening. 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 1 through 7. And I'm going to read those verses for us. But before I do, I remind you as always, brothers and sisters, that this is the word of the living God. And so may we receive it from him as such. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Beloved, the words of the Lord are pure words, so let's ask him now to use his word to purify us. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we confess that far too often our souls cling to the dust, to the things of this world. And so we pray for the sake of Jesus, your Son, our Lord and Savior, that you would give us life according to your word. And you send your Spirit to make us understand the way of your precepts, that we might meditate on your wondrous works. Enlarge our hearts, O Lord, that we might run in the way of your commandments and cling to your testimonies. And give us a glimpse this evening, we pray, of the glories and the care of Christ, who is the head of the church, for he is our blessed hope, and we have loved his appearing. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, as we've continued our way through this letter of Timothy, of uh, Paul to Timothy, rather, we've seen that the intent of Paul in writing this letter is to instruct Timothy how one ought to conduct themselves in the household of God, which is the pillar and buttress of the truth. And we've seen Paul tells Timothy, listen, it's really important that you shut down these false teachers. It's really important that Sound doctrine is taught in the church. And it's really important that the church pray. And it's really important that that men and women understand their roles, what they are to do and what they're not to do within the church. And now Paul comes to the all-important topic of qualifications for overseers or for elders. The qualifications that the Holy Spirit works in men who are called and qualified to serve as overseers in the church. And if you've spent any amount of time looking at organizations or groups of human beings, you understand just how important leadership is, don't you? 
Because we, we're, we often heard it said, and rightly so, as goes the leadership, so goes that organization of people. So goes that group of, of followers that are leading that person. Or maybe you've heard this one. The followers will never get further along than their leaders. And generally speaking, most of the time, that's true. And so Paul says it's of the utmost importance that you understand and are able to recognize the work that the Holy Spirit has done in a man so that he is qualified to hold the office of overseer. And so that's our topic tonight, qualifications for elders. And I want to look at this very, very simply. It's a long list of of qualifications. And so to to serve as a bit of an outline for us, we're going to look first at what an elder must be, what an elder must be, what character qualifications he must exemplify in his life by God's grace. And then second of all, we're going to look at what an elder must not be. So we're going to look at it positively, what he should look like, and negatively, what he should not look like. And I'm not going to give you the verse markers because we're going to be all over the place as we go through this text. But I do want to make two comments before we jump into the text. You can uh, consider these warnings so that we don't veer off into error. The first thing that I want us to understand is there's a whole lot more that we could say on these seven verses than I'm going to say tonight. A lot of ink has been spilt on these verses. So don't come with the expectation that we have looked at this all exhaustively. That's the first warning. The second warning is that we we should not try to apply these verses woodenly or rigidly. Because there's really two extremes that we can go to when we approach this text. On the one hand, we can go to the extreme of applying it woodenly and rigidly so that no men are actually called to be elders because we're looking for perfection. And if that's the standard, then we're not going to have any elders. And no church should have any elders. So that's one extreme. On the other extreme, we don't want to, we don't want to be so squishy and fast and loose with these that, that they don't even matter. That we just appoint whoever we like or whatever men exemplify the virtues of our culture. And so we want to avoid either one of those extremes. And I'm going to especially warn us against the overly wooden or rigid application because I think that's probably what we as a church are more prone to. And and what I also want us to see as we look at these qualifications that the Spirit has provided as he's inspired Paul is I want us to, to see and behold as we look at these the love of God put on display, the love of Christ for his church put on display in not just providing this list of qualifications, but then by his grace actually raising up men in the church who by God's grace exemplify these qualifications and thus are called by God to lead Christ's church. Because we ought to see that and say, look how Christ loves us. Look at how he's provided these leaders to care for us. Having said that, let's look first then at what the elder must be. Look at verse 1 with me again. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So what is the first qualification for an elder or an overseer? It's very simple. He must desire to do the task. He's not to do it under a compulsion. He's not to do it because 
He wants something other than the work, the labor, the toil of teaching the whole counsel of God and refuting those who contradict, of leading the church, shepherding the church. And it is work and it is toil. But he ought to desire that because why? It's beautiful work. It's noble work. It's good work. Now, here's a really important qualifier that we need to put in here. Just because you are a male, and maybe you're even qualified, but just because you desire the work doesn't mean that you're called to that work. Do you understand what I mean by that? You you may desire it, and you may even meet some of these qualifications, but if the church doesn't call you to that work, then you're not to fulfill that office, obviously. Just because you feel an internal call doesn't mean there's an external call from the church. Christ's church must call you to this work. So the first thing that the elder must be is someone who desires the task. He desires to, as Paul says, pour himself out as a drink offering for Christ and for his church, even as Christ did. The under-shepherd follows the example of Christ, who is the chief shepherd, the good shepherd, who laid down his life for his sheep. And so he does this, he wants to do this work for the good of the church, for the glory of Christ. He doesn't want to do it for his own glory or his own personal gain or so that others might think well of him. That's not the motivation. He's not looking, if he's a double honor elder, where he has the office and he gets paid to do it, he's not looking for a cushy job. And he's not looking for something that he always gets to complain about. No, he desires the labor of caring for Christ's church, for the sheep. So the first qualification, he desires the work. And it's good for him to desire that work. Next, Paul gives us more qualifications in verse 2. So look there with me. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. So Paul gives these these lists of qualifications here in verse 2. So let's just walk through them. First of all, Paul says that the elder must be above reproach. Now again, what does that not mean? It does not mean that he must be perfect and without any fault, that he must be somehow sinless. Because again, if that's the standard, then we're not going to have any elders. So what does Paul mean then? If that's not what he means, what does he mean? Well, I think it's really clear what Paul is talking about here is that the, the qualification of being above reproach is that when you look at the life of an elder in regards to these qualifications and his walk with the Lord and his, his moral standing before men, he's not given to unrepentant sin, and he's not given to, to any sort of pattern of sin in his life that would, would bring shame upon Christ or, or cause him to not be able to lead the way that he ought to. More specifically, it, he's saying, Paul here, that no one inside or outside of the church can point to these specific qualifications for an elder and legitimately somehow bring substantiated charges against him. Now, that word substantiated is really important, right? Because anyone can make charges against anybody. Anyone can accuse anybody. The point is, are they substantiated? Is there proof? Is there evidence 
that this charge that's being brought, are there witnesses, two or three? And if there's not, then it should be silenced. But the point is that there shouldn't be able to be a substantiated charge against an elder in regards to these qualifications. So again, in short, his life should be such, with both inside and outside the church, that his character is known to be consistently, not perfectly, but consistently godly. He's exemplary in his walk with the Lord and his moral stance before others. He's exemplary in that. He has no glaring character faults that would impede him from caring for Christ's church or would bring dishonor upon Christ's church. Okay, so now you might wonder, all right, so that's what it means to be above a reproach, but what does that actually look like? Well, that's a good question because Paul elaborates. First, what does he say? The first way that you are to be above reproach is that he must be the husband of one wife. Now, again, remember my caution. Let's not apply this overly rigidly or woodenly. What is Paul not saying here? He's not saying that in order for a man to be qualified and called to serve as an elder, that he has to be married. It's not what he's saying. As a matter of fact, yours truly was appointed an elder at Sovereign Grace when he was still single. So he's not saying that. He's also not saying that if a man is married to a woman and has biblical grounds for divorce and then divorces her and remarries another Christian gal, that now he's got two wives and so he can't serve as an elder. Or if his first wife dies and he gets remarried, that now he's not able to serve. That, that's an over, overly rigid application or interpretation of what Paul's saying here. We don't want to mishandle the text. So what is Paul saying? He's saying that if a man has a wife, which most today do, and certainly when Paul was writing to Timothy in Ephesus, that was the case, then he ought to be known as a man who is singularly devoted to his wife. He upholds the vows that he said on their wedding day. And everybody knows he is a one-woman man. He's, he's singularly devoted to her. He cares for her. He has given himself to her. He's not a man that's given to lust in his heart or pornography or chasing other women or flirtatious all the time with the opposite sex. He's not given to any of those things. It should be known by all that he is his beloved and his beloved's is his. That should be the mark, one of the marks of his life that he interacts with the opposite sex in purity and fidelity in regards to his relationship with his wife. So Paul says that's one of the important ways an elder should be above reproach. Then what Paul says is he gives us these three qualifications that are really connected together. So let's walk through here. He says he should be sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable. That's what it's going to look like for an elder to be above reproach. First of all, he says that he should be sober-minded. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, obviously, in part, he means that The elder should not be given to being intoxicated by various substances, right? For example, he's going to say a little bit later in verse 3 that he shouldn't be a drunkard. So he shouldn't be regularly or at all be getting himself intoxicated with alcohol. That shouldn't be the mark of an elder. But I think he's saying more than that as well here. I, I also think what Paul's getting at is that when an elder, which he inevitably will be in, chaotic and wild situations, 
where the circumstances are just outside of his control and things get really wild, that he ought to be a level-headed man. That he keeps his wits about him. That he doesn't lose his mind, as it were, in those circumstances. And rather than acting rationally and wisely as he normally does, he gives way to foolishness and irrationality. Paul says, no, 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 he should be a man who is marked by sober-mindedness. It's what the ancient philosophers would have called temperance. He's able to to keep himself upright when everybody else seems to get flipped upside down. So, first, sober-minded. Secondly, and closely related to being sober-minded, Paul says an elder should be self-controlled. In regards to his entire person, his passions, his appetites, his mind, by God's grace, submits to his will, and by God's grace, his will submits to God. And then he, that's what he's striving for his entire life. And obviously, all of us as Christians, by the way, should strive for all of these qualifications. But as elders, we ought to be exemplary in that. We ought not to be given to excess in food or drink or anger or anything like that. We ought to be marked by self-control, not excess. And hopefully you can see why this is so important for leadership. I mean, this is important for leadership just in general. Paul's saying particularly in the, tr- in the church, but listen, if you have not, in a sense, if you have not led yourself into self-control, how are you going to lead other people in that? You're to be an example to others of what this looks like. And here's the thing. Who is the source of that self-mastery? <laughs> it's not us. It's God. This is a, the, a, the fruit of the Spirit. Paul says in Galatians 5, and 23, self-control. And so the elder is to be mastered by God, and that ought to be evident to everybody around him. So sober-minded, self-controlled, and then thirdly, again, you'll see how these are connected. Paul says in order to be above reproach, he must be respectable. Well, guess what? If you're going to be sober-minded and self-controlled, guess what? Your life is going to look very respectable. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody's going to respect you. You can be respectable and not have people respect you, but but respectability is is an objective thing that you can actually measure. It's not that it's not measured ultimately in the eyes of others, it's measured in the eyes of God. Are you walking before him in faith? And love, obeying his commandments as his spirit empowers you so that you're sober-minded and self-controlled. That's a respectable life. And many will respect it, but not all. And so Paul says, this is what is to mark an elder whose life is above reproach. Now, Paul goes on to say that another way in which elders are to be above reproach is that they are hospitable. Quite literally in the Greek, Elders are to be those who are marked by, by God's grace, those who love strangers. Who love strangers. Now make no no doubt about it. An elder should welcome believers and unbelievers. People he knows and doesn't know into into his home. But the emphasis here is on this ancient virtue of some of the, the most helpless people in ancient society were travelers. They had nowhere to stay. They didn't know anybody. And so it was a sign of your character when you took strangers in, travelers in, and you showed them hospitality. And Paul says Christian elders in the church ought to be marked by that. 
They ought to be characterized by that with a special emphasis on these strangers that they come into contact with. They share food with them. They share their homes with them. And obviously, of course, they share the gospel with them. Now, to finish off verse 2, Paul says what? He says an elder must be able to teach. Now, that should kind of stand out to us as interesting. Because if you notice, all of these other qualifications are what? They're character qualifications, aren't they? This is the first, if you will, skill or gift uh, that Paul mentions, and really the only one. Now, you could say, well, aren't all of these gracious workings of the Holy Spirit a gift? Yes, they are. But you understand what I'm getting at. It's a, it's a skill uh, that obviously God empowers men to have, but to be able to teach. And so I think this is really important for us as a culture. It's really important for every time and space and history, but especially for us, because as humans, what are we so prone to do? We are so prone to value the performance, aren't we? The giftedness. And, and so we, we look at that and we value that way more than the character of a person. I think we do that to our harm just in life in general, and we certainly do that to the harm of Christ's church. When we do that with elders, just because you're successful or a high performer in certain regards, if you don't have the character, none of that ultimately really matters. Paul says the emphasis here is on character, not on giftedness, but on character. Now, having said that, Paul does say here's one skill that is necessary. The elder must be able to teach. Now, what does that mean? Well, let me tell you what that doesn't mean first doesn't mean that the elder has to be in the pulpit Sunday after Sunday. We've had elders in the history of Sovereign Grace who never darkened the pulpit of Sovereign Grace. Does that mean that they weren't able to teach? No, that's not what that means at all. I love how John Calvin uh, basically summarizes this ability to be able to teach. He says that an elder should be able to apply God's word to the profit of the people. In other words, he's been trained by other men, and he's been trained by God to know the scriptures, to know sound doctrine, how to live and apply them wisely to his own life. And as a result of his communing with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, he's able to then apply the word profitably to others in a way that benefits them. And then they vocalize that back to him. And that's one of the ways that we're able to identify the Lord has given them this gift of being able to. To teach. Now, after mentioning that one skill that's necessary for elders, Paul lists one more character qualification in verses 4 and 5. So skip verse 3 with me, and let's look at verses 4 and 5. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's Church. Now, this should make absolute sense to you, right? It should make perfect sense to you that if you want to see if a man is going to be a good leader in the household of God, look first to see how he manages the household that God has given him in his wife and in his children. Now, don't apply this overly woodenly again and say, well, okay, an elder has to have at least two kids, right? Because his children must be submissive to him. This, this happens. You shake your head and laugh, but... These, these kind of debates happen. It's like, what in the world? What are we doing here? What's the point? Most of these men were married. Most of these men would have more than one child. 
And so the point is, you should be able to walk into his home and say, here's a man that will manage the household of God well. He's leading his wife. He's leading his children. If he doesn't do it there, do not have the expectation that he's going to do it in the church. It's just, it's really commonsensical. And so Paul says, that's one of the qualifications. You should look at his house. You should talk to his wife. You should talk to his kids. So what we've seen is that these are the qualifications that Paul says must mark an elder who's called and qualified. This is God's gracious work in this man, calling him, equipping him so that he walks in communion with God and he's able to be great benefit to the church. But now that we've looked at what an elder must be, let's look secondly, negatively, at what the elder must not be. Look at verse 3 with me. Paul says he must not be a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. And if you think about it, this is really the, the, the negative side of the positive side, which he's supposed to be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, that what that wouldn't look like is, first of all, if he were to be a drunkard, right? We already saw that you must be sober-minded. And so here, he's not to be a man that's given to intoxicating himself in the variety of ways that one can do that. He also goes on to say that he should not be violent, but gentle, I don't know about you, but one of the most disgusting things I can see is when a man is called to lead and he's violent in that. When he's a bully, when he's unkind, he's been given that position or that authority, not so that everybody can just submit to his will and he can make his life easier for himself. No, no, no. He's been given his family or he's been given charge to serve in Christ's church, not to elevate himself but to to husband and nurture and care for those put in his charge. And he will have to answer to the Lord for that. But Paul says, listen, don't, don't, don't go trying to find men who are bullies. Don't go finding men who are, are, are violent and, and seek to intimidate people into following their lead. Because that's, that's not a true leader. It's certainly not how Jesus led. And so as we lead the church, that's not how we are to lead either. Because that's not true leadership. So Paul says, not violent, but instead gentle. That's not, doesn't mean he's weak and a pushover. Doesn't mean that he doesn't know the truth and stands for it. But it means he, he doesn't get ugly. He's able to control himself and use that power and strength that God has given him for the glory of God and the benefit of those under his charge. Next, Paul says that he must not be quarrelsome. Now, you may think, well, now isn't the calling of an elder to teach the whole counsel of God and refute those who contradict? So doesn't he need to engage in a little polemics? Doesn't he need to engage in, in battle and, and fighting at times? Well, yes, yes, absolutely. But I think what Paul is saying here is that is not what he should be living for. And you know these people, don't you? You've run into these kinds of men before, quarrelsome, always wanting to to talk about the minutiae, and there, there's never constructive conversation. It's always, it's always looking for a fight. Always. And Paul says, that is not what you're looking for, an elder. If that is present, then that is, that is not proof that the Spirit has worked in him so that he's called and qualified to serve as an overseer in Christ's church. He shouldn't be characterized by quarreling, but by peace. 
He's not a man who loves to quarrel. He may do it, have to do it way more than he wants to, but he doesn't live for it. He doesn't love it. Paul goes on to say that he must not be a lover of money. Again, this should be really, really obvious. Because I can tell you that our elders, to various degrees, in one way, shape, or form, we have to have our hands on finances. And if you've got a lover of money in that position, that's a really dangerous thing. Because they might abuse the finances. But beyond that, the character that that reveals is really problematic, isn't it? Because what does Jesus say in Luke 6, 24? You can't love God and money. You're going to either love the one and, and hate the other. And so you can't be given to love of money. As Paul is going to say later in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the, the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Paul says that, that that's not going to be the character of an elder. Will he be wise with money? Yes. As a matter of fact, one of the things that we do at Sovereign Grace is we look at a man's personal finances. Does he know how to handle it? What kind of debt do you have? What kind of savings do you have? So he should be wise with it. He should know how to handle it. But if his aim in life is to make money, look out. Look out for that man in any form of leadership. And Paul says he has no place in leadership in Christ's church in that capacity. Paul goes on to talk about what an elder must not be in verse 6. So look there with me. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. In other words, he must not be someone who's new to the faith, who's recently been saved by God's grace. Now, again, overly rigid here, right? Okay, so... How long does one have to be a believer before they're no longer a recent convert? I, there's no, there's no one size fits all answer for that, brothers and sisters. And so I, I hope you see the, the wisdom that has to be applied by the elders that are within a church who are recommending a man to serve as an elder. And there's got to be wisdom on the part of the church, the congregation, as they cast their vote as to whether or not they see Christ's work in that man to be assigned for that office. And and it's so sad how often you see this happen in, in the evangelical church. Right? A big shot. Someone famous gets saved and it's like, well, we gotta put we gotta get them on a pedestal. We gotta give them a podium so they can speak, a platform. How how many unbelievers will will become believers because of that person's testimony? And I it upsets me because I think what a horrible stewardship of that person's soul. You are opening them up to attacks from the enemy that they have not had time to commune with the Lord and, and grow and strengthen in being able to resist the temptations of the devil. You're, you're putting them in the very front lines before they've even been trained to handle that. And so it's a great disservice to that person. It's a great disservice to Christ's church. And so Paul says, must not be a recent convert. Give him time to grow. Give him time to mature. And finally, in verse 7, we have the last qualification, which really I could have put in either category, what an elder should or should not be, but I put it in what he should not be. So let's look there. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. 
So just as the recent convert shouldn't be an elder because he might be puffed up and and fall into pride like the devil did, here an elder must have um, a good reputation, be well thought of by outsiders so that he doesn't fall into it to disgrace. Because you know Satan wants the leaders of a church to fall into disgrace so he can besmirch the church and mock the church and accuse the church and give unbelievers excuses. Well, look at those hypocrites. I'm not going to go over there. You've heard these arguments. And so Paul says, listen, he must be well thought of by outsiders. Or he mustn't have a bad reputation, if we want to put it negatively, with those outside of the church. Now, let's be really clear about this. What does that not mean? It does not mean that everybody's going to like this man. It doesn't mean that everybody's going to think he's the, the greatest thing since sliced bread. That's not the point. As a matter of fact, if you can only find people that speak well of that elder, then there's, there's probably a problem. If you can't find anybody who doesn't like him because of his Christianity, because of his, his sharing the gospel with unbelievers who have never been offended by him because of the gospel message, Jesus says, woe unto that man when they speak well of you. But blessed are you when you're reviled for my name. And so that's not what Paul is saying here. What he is saying is that those outside of the church should know an elder as a moral man, as a godly man, as a good man as a trustworthy man, whether they like him or not. In other words, they may not like him, but they can acknowledge he lives a respectable life. Paul says that's necessary. So that if you go ask his unbelieving neighbors or co-workers or whoever, they are able to acknowledge those things in him. Now again, I know that was really fast and there's a lot more we could say about that, but I want to end with this, brothers and sisters. Again, when you look at this list of qualifications... And probably even more importantly, when you see in the church that God has raised up men like this and is currently in our midst raising up more men to serve in this way, who are qualified, who are called, who love you, who desire the task of of teaching the whole counsel of God and refuting those who contradict, of shepherding you through the challenges of life, leading you, loving you, caring for you. I don't want you to ultimately be amazed by them. Yes, show honor to them. They are the means that Christ uses to care for you. But I want you to look at that and and love your Savior more. Because they are an evidence to you of his love and his care and his grace towards you. You are his bride. And while he is away preparing a place for you, he has not left you without those to care for you. And they are elders, called and qualified men that Christ has raised up, who are exemplars of the work of Christ in one's life. The fact that he died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead, fulfilled all righteousness. He is making all things new. And one of the the best examples of that is the elders that he raises up in the church to care for you. And so I plead with you to, to pray that the Lord would raise up even more men because we need, we need more called and qualified men to serve in this way at Sovereign Grace. Pray that the Lord would be pleased to raise up more men. And as one of your current elders, I, I ask you to plead with the Lord that he would keep us. That he would keep us so that we walk and grow together and individually in true righteousness and holiness. So that we're able to serve you as we ought and not bring shame upon Christ's church. Because as 
as John the Baptist says, he must increase, I must decrease. We're not here for you to fall, (laughs) this sounds weird, more in love with us, but him. To point you to him. And so pray that we would persevere in that and not make shipwreck of faith. May the Lord be pleased to do that in our midst. Amen.